You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Good morning. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. June 1st, the day the Treasury Secretary says the United States could hit the debt ceiling is six days from today. But there's still no deal. And Congress is on Memorial Day recess, not expected to return until June 5th. So now what? Joining me now to try to answer that question, Leanne Caldwell, co-author of the Washington Post's early 202 newsletter. Leanne, welcome back to First Look. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. So as we speak right now, things aren't as pessimistic as my intro sounded. Where are things with the, with the negotiations right now? They're not as pessimistic, but there's still a long way to go. So what's happening is the contours of a deal are really starting to come together. And this big question really of how much the government is going to spend not only next year, but in future years is really starting to be narrowed and to be agreed on between the Republicans in the House, or I should say Republican leadership and President Biden. Um, and so, and they're also starting to agree that the debt limit should be lifted in for two more years, um, which is passed at the presidential election to kind of take the politics out of this. But I will say, as everyone always says in these deals, the devil is in the details. And the reason is, is because you have parameters of an agreement, it depends on how it's structured what sort of loopholes there are, what does all of this mean? And that's really what they're struggling with right now. And then there's also these external questions that have become part of this deal about work requirements for social safety net programs. Republicans really want to uh, tighten those work requirements, make it more difficult for people to access this aid. And Democrats as a party from the most liberal to even the most moderate in, within the House Democrats are really saying that they cannot accept more work requirements. So that's just a broad overview of and to say that while it's coming together a little bit more, there's still many potholes that remain. Um, yeah, and another thing that's hanging out there is the House Freedom Caucus, which has made it clear several times that um, they want more spending cuts. Uh, and the last thing I heard is that they don't think that whatever the framework and parameters are so far <clears throat> go far enough. There are some aspects of the um, emerging framework that I found interesting. I would love to get your thoughts on this. There is, um, it, the stories are reporting <clears throat> that the deal, as you said, would lift the debt ceiling through 2024. But here's the part that I found interesting, Leanne. Uh, while putting in place a mechanism to incentivize Congress to pass all 12 annual spending bills. And this is according to, to multiple sources. Now, I find that interesting because that's the normal budgetary process. That is the way things are supposed to work. So am I right in thinking that this is the face-saving maneuver for both sides here um, to move the negotiations away from the debt ceiling and back into just the normal everyday give and take of the budgetary process? Or am I reading too much into it? That's a really good take um, that I actually hadn't thought about. But on you know that's been a theme throughout. 
this process um, that actually Democrats have really been hammering home on is that, yes, we could talk about budget, we could talk about government spending, but it's supposed to be done through the normal appropriations process. Now, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been trying to sell to his members, this is just one step of what we are going to be able to try to reduce spending, one, one pressure point. But we also have the appropriations process to do that too. So while the Republicans and the Democrats are talking about it in a different way and have different demands, they both are in their own way saying that actually the appropriations process is where they're going to get deep into this. And there's another shot at having this conversation. And so what's interesting about that, though, is once this debt limit is lifted and they have the, this, these spending caps and how much can be spent over the next two years, that means that we're also not in the clear because there is going to be that big fight through the appropriations process in the months ahead. And so this is really just the beginning of a tumultuous next few months of trying to fund this government. And, and, and right now, with the debt limit. Right. And so you, so let's say this all goes through and the debt limit is raised. The, the, the hostage is released, which is the global financial uh, framework. But going through the regular appropriations process sets up another, big, as you said, months of drama, because then you then head into a government shutdown, which is infinitely yeah. less traumatic than um, crashing through the debt ceiling. But how likely is it that through the regular appropriations process, Speaker McCarthy can get the votes to pass those 12 bills through the regular appropriations process? It's not going to be easy. And, you know, we're starting to see how difficult it's going to be through my reporting. Um, in addition to reporting on this big story of the moment, the debt limit, I'm also following a lot of other side stories, bills that are making its way through Congress, appropriations bills that are making its way through Congress, and also just individual member priorities. And a lot of these bills add money or call for increases to mental health, to FAA safety. Um, there's a whole list of things that people want to add money to fund their priority. When you have 435 priorities, it makes it really difficult to reduce spending. And so right. it's going to be, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be really, really difficult. I think that one thing about this proposal on the debt limit that's kind of interesting, if it works out the way that I interpret it to, that if they don't pass these 12 appropriations bills, an automatic continuing resolution goes into place. So it almost cuts out the chances of a government shutdown because mm. the spend, current year spending will just continue. And then Republicans, Democrats like it because there won't be a government shutdown. Republicans like it because then it keeps spending flat. Mm -hmm. It doesn't increase, there's no chance to increase spending. We'll see how this all works out. It's pretty complicated. <laughs> right, I gotta get you on two things. We're running out of time, but I get you on, on two things. So we're gonna go a little, a little long. You reported this week that Repu Republicans seem to be more united, at least when you were, when you were reporting that, because these things change seemingly minute by minute. And Democrats 
and as you know, we all know, and you were just mentioning, I've been grumbling, particularly about work requirements. What I'm wondering is, in the last day, have we seen, at least on the Democratic side, the, the posture shift and the tone shift from complaining about the White House to taking matters into their own hands messaging-wise and getting out there and hammering at, at Republicans to sort of fill the space that's been left by the White House saying mum, while Speaker McCarthy holds near hourly press conferences or availabilities during the negotiations. Yeah, there had been a lot of frustration that McCarthy has been, you know, um, managing and owning the message here. He, like you said, talks to reporters all day throughout the day, gives updates. We heard nothing from the White House. And so, Democrats got extremely concerned about that. They thought that they were being forced to negotiate the parameters of the Republican bill. They weren't selling it to 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 the American, the Democratic priorities to the American public. And so I will say, since we reported that, there has been a notable shift where um, you know Democratic leaders have been much more aggressive. Um, they have been communicating a lot more with the White House, and they've been really trying to unite and uh, come forward with a united front. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there has been a concerted effort over the last 24, 36 hours by the White House to get Democrats on the same page. And so now you're seeing Republicans who are starting to complain about the parameters of this bill, especially the ones on the far right. Uh, real quickly, Leanne, two, I, I've noticed two things, maybe they're coincidental, but the president is staying at Camp David um, today and tomorrow. Speaker McCarthy is staying in Washington. How likely are we to see the president and the speaker at Camp David together? Oh, that, you know, that's a great question. I don't know. It could be very, very likely, um, unless President Biden comes back. Um, it's going to be interesting if they have a deal, if they get a deal, how they're going to roll this out. Um, maybe they show a united front and do a joint appearance. Um, we'll have to see first if they can get a deal or and if how if they come together or if things fall apart and they have to meet again. There's just so many scenarios that can happen. So I'll be watching. Right. All, all I know is this ain't nothing like a Camp David uh, stay to, to seal a deal. Um, right. And we shall see. We've got a McCarthy whole weekend. McCarthy does like the trappings of power. So we'll see. There you go. There you go. Um, I think I know a reporter who could run that down to see if, that, <laughs> if that's actually going to happen. And that's you, Leanne Caldwell, co-author of the Washington Post Early 202 newsletter. As always, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks. You too, Jonathan. We're going to keep the uh, conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists Jennifer Rubin and Hugh Hewitt. Jennifer, Hugh, welcome back to First Look. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so um, let's start. Let's keep talking about the debt ceiling and my my new little hobby horse here. Now that I've noticed this coincidental calendar items here, Hugh. If you were to see, it, it, you see, the president's going to Camp David. 
usually goes to Rehoboth, um, and he will later in the weekend. The speaker is staying in Washington this weekend. How likely is it that we will see the president and the speaker at Camp David together, and that's where a the deal that we're all waiting for emerges? Yeah, Jonathan, it's a great idea. I don't think it's going to happen. I think Speaker McCarthy is staying in town so that when Congressman Graves and Chairman McHenry come back with what the, the group of four that is working on this have, he's there to give it a thumbs up and run it past people like David Joyce, who is the chair of the Republican Governance Group, and and uh, Congressman Kern, who runs the Republican Study Group. It's got to be all worked out. I don't see it happening this weekend. I do see it happening on Tuesday or Wednesday. Jennifer, are are you as glum as Hugh <laughs> on my idea? I, I'm not glum. And it didn't sound like Hugh was entirely down in the dumps because he's suggesting that there would be a deal on Tuesday and Wednesday. And on that, you found something we actually agree on. I have sensed, um, Jonathan, that the item that you picked up on, not necessarily the Camp David, but the little fine print is exactly where we are headed. If at the end of the day, this comes out that, well, yes, here's the budget that we've agreed on, and the White House says, yes, we'll have some certain spending caps, but it will go through the normal appropriations process. And oh, by the way, if there's not the normal appropriations process that results in these 12 or 13 appropriation bills, we'll just fall back on a CR, a continuing resolution. Yeah. And if that's the deal, it's the biggest hoodwink in history because Joe Biden was never going to get anything more than a CR from these people. He was always going to have to eventually agree that just to disagree. And if he gets his debt ceiling raised and winds up with a CR for the end of through the end of his presidency, he's going to do a happy dance. Now, he can't do the happy dance before the Republicans sign off on this or he gets a few Republicans. But if that's the end game. That's brilliant. That's exactly where he wants to be. And he gets credit for being the deal maker. He didn't have to go to the 14th Amendment. He didn't have to use a discharge position. And we're all done, nice and neat. So I think you put your finger on something, Jonathan. And if that's what he's doing, he's crazy like a fox. And maybe Democrats are just beginning to figure this out. What, what, do, you make of, what do you make of that, Hugh? Well, I'm happy right now. And so if Jennifer is happy and I'm happy, maybe there's actually a middle ground. I'm very happy that they're going to roll back the IRS agent spending and redistribute it on other domestic discretionary. I'm very happy that the reporting is that the defense budget will go up. I'm very happy that there's going to be a work requirement. I guess I'm kind of happy that the hard left part of the Democratic caucus is wringing their hands. But as, as, as we heard, the devil's in the detail. I don't know what's going to be in this thing, but I do know to watch Joyce and uh, Ken and see which way uh, the wind is blowing in the majority of the Republican caucus. I pay very little attention to the Freedom Caucus. I keep my attention on the Republican study group and the Republican governance group. That's where the votes are. And so then, and so given the reporting that we've heard uh, about these negotiations, all the twists and the turns, where are they? Uh, what is their thinking? Where is the Republican study group? Very, they're, right, they're very happy. And in fact, the YouGov study on Kevin McCarthy, he went from underwater by five points in January to a 46% approval rating right now, which is a swing of 15 points. He has been messaging very, very well. The speaker is doing far better than expectations. It's great to have low expectations. You always beat them. 
So he's happy, I'm happy, the Republicans are happy right now, and it's the liberal Democrats who are unhappy, and maybe Jennifer's picked up on they're getting happier. I don't know, but uh, I'm very happy right now. So You know, and, none and of Jennifer that's going to happen if they go through a CR. There's not going to be work requirements. There's not going to be a redistribution of that mo money from the IRS. A CR means everything stays the same. Let's see how this ends um, at the uh, the last minute and the last day. But I think what we do agree on is there is not going to be a uh, default that even mm -hmm. Kevin McCarthy, even the Republicans understand the gravity of that. And that ultimately does give um, the president a little bit of leeway because I think he um, will ultimately say to these people, it's going to be your fault if we go down the road of default. And I always have in my back pocket. I haven't completely renounced a 14th Amendment option. So do what you will. And I think this is going to be a lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of trying to assuage the Republicans to convince them they've gotten something. It's going to be a very interesting dance after they reach this deal, because getting enough Republicans to understand that they got to get this done, even though they may be holding a, uh, a handful of jello that doesn't really stand <laughs> up. Um, will be really interesting to see. Well, I mean, the Jello could have fruit chunks in it, so that's something you could uh, hold on to. All right. Um, so you both agree that there will be a deal uh, to raise the to raise the debt ceiling before June first. So let's move on to um, Republican presidential politics. We had two launches uh, this week. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina launched his campaign, and so did Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Um, announcing his bid for the White House Wednesday night, but it didn't quite go how he wanted. Watch. All right, sorry about that. We, we've got so many people here that I think we are, we are uh, kind of melting the servers. So if they just keep crashing, huh? See, so I think we're back online here. Um, all right. Well, it's certainly uh, an, an incredible honor to uh, have Governor DeSantis uh, make this uh, stark announcement. My favorite part is the three minutes later, two minutes later. But after 20 minutes of glitches, Twitter CEO Elon Musk was able to begin the conversation with Governor DeSantis. Hugh, I'm going to this is to both of you, but I'm going to start with you, Hugh. How damaging was this first impression for yeah, Governor DeSantis? I mean, it was hilarious actually being online. The best comeback was the president putting out, this link works, and I, you have to say well played, Mr. Bond, when he did that, because he raised some money off of it. The 20-minute delay is not on Ron DeSantis, and I think people are attaching significant matter being silly. He raised a million dollars that night. Twitter Spaces had a million eyes on it, and I like the stand-up comedy that came out on Twitter. Everyone thinks they're a stand-up comic until they're in front of a microphone, but on Twitter, when there's a fiasco that's technical, everybody goes to town. I, I, I thought it was great fun, and eventually the messaging was very good. Jennifer? I don't think we were listening to the same uh, little uh, catastrophe. Um, and by the way, this is why I don't want self-driving cars from uh, <laughs> Elon Musk. Um, you know, it's uh, technology has its glitches. Listen, it was a huge fundamental error to roll out this way. 
Who could have thought Elon Musk, who has destroyed Twitter, who has fired all the engineers, couldn't really put this off? I mean, what was Ron DeSantis and his people thinking? Listen, campaigns are a metaphor for how you govern. And he was running on the position that I'm a more competent, more sober, no drama, no uh, upset kind of guy. And he botched this. Um, and it was so comical. And what's more is it underscored that he is a little bit of a weirdo. He didn't roll out his uh, announcement with a big speech with a room full of people. Tim Scott did that. Even Donald Trump did that. Instead, he goes on this little sidekick of the internet, which not very many people are on, and even fewer Republican primary voters are on because they tend to be older. And he does this kind of very awkward conversation with the only guy who's possibly more socially ill-adept than he, who is Elon Musk, a crazy billionaire. So the whole thing, if it was aiming to make him more normal, seem more competent, more in command, did not work. And I don't think people make the distinction between Elon Musk and uh, Ron DeSantis. And if he, Elon Musk did screw up, it was Ron DeSantis's poor call in trying to trust his campaign to this. Um, and you do kind of wonder, like, why did he go to Elon Musk? The audience that he said melted his servers was like three, 400,000 people. It was tiny. So I don't quite get that. Now, interestingly enough, he later did go on Fox and had a semi-normal conversation um, with a relatively low-key um, Trey Gowdy, who's a uh, former Republican member of Congress and uh, a pretty smart guy. But even that conversation was very subdued, very quiet, and I think this underlying concern that he's a relatively antisocial person without charisma, without the ability to interact with real human beings is going to be a problem. You know, and speaking of, uh, of glitches, you know, sometimes glitches can work to your benefit. And I, I thought back to 2020 and at the time, because I was watching it live, Senator Amy Klobuchar's presidential announcement in winter outdoors in Minnesota, in Minnesota, in the middle of a blizzard. I mean, it, in real time, it's like, what was she thinking? But then as you watched it, it's like, there, you know what? This is kind of hot. Cornfield. There's Bob Dole in the cornfield. There's Mike Dukakis in the tank. There's Jimmy Carter with the killer rabbit. There are bad pictures out there from every campaign, but there was no picture of this. There was just audio. I just have right. to say, uh, the Republican point of view, I just, I think it's a nothing. But yeah, people can go on and write, they think it's a something. I just thought it was a nothing. I mean, and did the classic thing. The, the, the point I was just trying to make is that sometimes glitches, what are perceived to be glitches, actually turn out to be really good things. We'll see if um, this technical glitch on, on Twitter will inure to um, the governor's benefit. Um, Jennifer. There's a story, I believe it's on the front page of the of the New York Times. I think I think it is, um, where it, it's about how Governor DeSantis is trying to draw a distinction um, between himself and, and and Donald Trump by focusing on policy. And when it comes to policy, the governor has signed a lot of stuff 
in, in the last, uh, last few weeks. The, um, a bill banning abortion after six weeks in Florida, lowering the threshold to impose the death penalty. And you know, you can throw it the CRT and all the other things going after Disney. Um, I'm just wondering, is, is Governor DeSantis more aligned with conservatives on issues than Trump is? Well, it depends who you're talking about. If you're talking about people who listen to Hugh Hewitt's radio show all day long, or who are deep in the weeds of all of these um, culture war memes, certainly Ron DeSantis has the edge. But that's not even a majority of the Republican Party. When they poll what wokeness means, first of all, the vast majority of the American people don't know what it is. Yeah. And those who do, more of them say it's something positive than not. These are such niche issues. And it's very easy sitting in Washington or sitting in a talk radio uh, environment or watching Fox News to think that the rest of the country understands this. But in fact, the rest of the country is probably mystified when he starts throwing out acronyms like DEI and ESG. Who knows what that actually means? So I think he has a problem in broadening that message, and maybe he will. He can talk about crime. He can talk about um, the uh, border. He's going to have to because most people's lives do not turn on ESG or DEI. They turn on how much they have to pay for groceries and whether they think that they're physically secure in their communities. So I think he's going to have to move from the niche to the slightly more important but I think it's a misunderstanding that policy is what is driving Republicans these days. Trump provided an ethos that Republicans liked. Um, he channeled their anger at the establishment. He brought the sense of victimhood. He hearkened back to an era in which people like them were really in charge. I don't think it's policy that's going to win the day. I think it's going to be Republican sensing, number one, this guy can win. And number two, he speaks for people like me. And I think we in the media space often exaggerate the importance of policy. So I wouldn't put too hmm. much stake in his fine points of a 15-point economic plan. I don't think that's going to win the day. Okay, Hugh, so your name was invoked, your listeners were invoked, and that was perfect because my the last question I have here is for you, and it states verbatim, Hugh, you talk to Republican voters every day. <laughs> is there anyone who can compete with Donald Trump for their votes? Yes, there is. And I, the Republican columnists or the center-right columnists at the Post are having a roundtable. It'll be edited and we'll post this weekend. And I'm the most boring one among the six or seven of us because I keep saying nothing matters until August because that's the first debate. There is going to be 10 to 12 debates. Whoever's on that stage has a chance of winning and how they play that game is what matters the most. I like the DeSantis rollout. I thought the president's, uh, former President Trump's attack on the governor as being bad on COVID was ill-timed and not very well executed. But generally, nothing matters until they get on that debate stage in Milwaukee. You know what? And that is the thing. Everyone can talk a whole lot of smack from hundreds of miles away, from behind a, a, a tweet, um, from behind social media. But when you are arrayed on that stage based on your polling right now, Governor DeSantis and Donald Trump will be right next to each other and how is Governor DeSantis going to handle the fire-breathing dragon standing next to him who has no 
filter when it comes to going after opponents and particularly going after opponents who are he views as his number one competition. Hugh Hewitt, Jennifer Rubin, as always, thank you both very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks, you too. Thank Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.